Hey everybody, welcome to the Family Jewels True Crime Podcast. This is Brian Sobolewski, your host, and I am walking you through the five-year period my father, brother, and I robbed jewelry stores all over New England in the aftermath. Season 2 here is already up to episode 9, and uh, Suicide Pact. Now, I, I want to explain that, of course, because the I think the ver- literal definition of a suicide pact is two people or more making an agreement to all kill themselves and that's not what this is but there was no there's no other term for what this is so uh that's what i'm calling the episode and i hope all of that will become clearer as we move on now i'm not we're gonna just pick right up from where i am uh and where i left you in indictment i am in the back of a nashville police cruiser i was just picked up by the nashville police department detective sprankle pulled me over in traffic i actually pulled down uh, all the traffic going in and out of Hudson and Nashua. And that is, unfortunately, the only version of a perp walk I'm going to see. And that's very disappointing. It's very disappointing because at no point did anyone consider me a big fish. And that sucked. You know, they, they Kev gets news coverage and a flight home. Uh, Dad's on the news, 4, 5, and 7. And, you know, spreads like wildfire. Uh, the newspaper article that I put as the cover photo for indictment is the only mention of my name in any of this. And they spelled my name with an I. So, uh, my 15 minutes of infamy, <laughs> um, you know, I, I didn't, it, 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 I don't know, it did something to my ego, I gotta tell you. It really, it, it just touched upon that, um... And at some point, I'll do an episode about my career in bodybuilding. But, you know, my entire life, I always just waited for the same genetics that made my brother into a freak to happen to me. And, you know, it, it, it was a long time coming and coming to the acceptance of the fact that that was never going to happen. So that particular thing, my name isn't spelled right, no perp walk, no one gives a shit. It was just Sprankle taking me down. I don't know how many cops that had to take down my brother how many people they had in tow or or, uh, on the sidelines waiting to be called in because uh they must have looked at him as oh geez we gotta take this uh, this big son of a bitch down and it was only it was two cops that brought my dad down so um no perp walk for bry damn it but i'm in the back of the uh cruiser And this is the best way that I can explain my life from that moment. Okay, so once I I was on top of that bridge and and Detective Sprankle swoops in in front of my car to block me and puts his gun on me, my world changed. And that shouldn't be very difficult for anybody to understand, right? Not hard to to picture that. There's there's been enough talk about that type of thing. But what I can tell you is I, I imagine it and it felt a lot like even in the cruiser, like an aquarium fish that's being transported from one tank to another. So they put them in those little bags. You try to acclimate the bag before you put the fish into the into population, right? I mean, that's what a fish tank is. It's a prison for fish. And that's exactly what it feels like. I felt like I was suspended in a Ziploc bag in water and all that, the rest of the world, reality, is no longer... A part of your life. The reality of 
getting up in the morning and turning on the news and having a cup of coffee and going to the store. Like every single thing that you do every day, it's gone. Gone. Like there's not a single thing that you can now rely on because you don't know where you're going to wake up tomorrow. You don't know where you're going to put your head tonight. Don't know where you're going to wake up tomorrow. You don't know where they're going to ship you. And at no point can you say or go and do what you want. Right? Everybody gets that concept. But, you know, to put it in, in the best terms possible, I'm in that baggie. I'm in that baggie floating around. Because it, there's multiple reasons for that, as you'll hear. So they drive me uh, to the National Police Department. And it goes right by the commons. There's, there's this commons with this I guess, grassy area in between these two roads in Nashville. I forget the names of the roads. My apologies. But... Uh, I remember looking through there and, and that's where you, it's not just looking through the glass of the cruiser. You're looking now through this, this water you're, because you can't reach out and touch it, right? That's that there is a permanent blockade between you now and the reality everybody else has, even including the cop that's driving me. He gets to go home tonight. <laughs> so they pull me into the, uh, to the police station and they take me out of the cruiser um, bring me in and they don't uncuff you they bring you into uh, where they're going to process you they strip you down uh, take your shoes and the laces out of your shoes they give you your shoes back generally but I did not get my shoes back um, still kept my clothes on but they do a thorough search pat you down get all your shit uh, from there drop you into a cell. Now, National Police Department being, I think it was a relatively new building, they were a nationally accredited police force. And um, that that's some of the stuff that I want to talk about in terms of just how absolutely wrong they were about so much stuff. that And, and how incredibly hard that must have been to do with somebody that was telling you everything you wanted to know. I mean, Nancy was working with them. So I'm not exactly sure what where Nancy is or or who she made the deal with. I know it was Massachusetts, but I don't know if, you know, of course, I'm imagining Sprinkle is privy to that particular information or, you know, of the case. He's part of it. But I don't know. Maybe, maybe Nashua and maybe New Hampshire and Massachusetts don't share that shit or maybe it was too early in the case. Anyway, they, they dropped me in the cell and um, it's probably about three o'clock in the afternoon, three or four. Right before, right before dinner, it's not long, but before Sprankle's partner comes down, and he was huge. And I don't, Dad had more uh, dealing with him than um, than I did. So for some reason, they took you know Sprankle was partnered with a guy that was about my dad's size, and that, that they didn't get along. Dad, there's a phone call back in season one that Dad talks about that guy. Jeez, I hated that guy. I hated both of them. Uh, but um, I, I didn't have much dealings with him. And he came down to get me. And takes me out of the cell. And he brings me down this hallway. Puts me into an elevator. Comes in with me. And as we're going up to the next floor, he starts the good cop routine. Oh, jeez, man. This sounds like a lot of trouble you're in, man. This is, uh, you know, what is this? Like a mistake or something? You know, just... just <laughs> And I, and I knew it, and it was you know it was too late for me to play badass or or whatever, um, but I didn't say anything. 
elevator opens up and I, I know the hallway because I had been there before during the interrogation and put they put me in the same room and I'm sitting there with now I'm sitting there with Sprinkle and I'm sitting with his partner they, they both fill the room just the room is full anyway with my anxiety over this whole thing I sit down Sprinkle's got his yellow legal pad out and a case file and he says uh, we picked up Lawson this morning and uh, he's singing like a bird and uh, we're gearing up to ship you down to Massachusetts he says I'm not charging you for um, phoning in the false insurance robbery he says so you know we're done with you but I can tell you that I'm in contact with the Massachusetts uh, State Police Department and they're investigating the situation and if you wanted to talk to me right now and and give me some information, I could call them and, and they could be easier on you come sentencing time. So basically asking me to start ratting. And that's that's what they do to everybody. Um, I said, you're out of your fucking mind. Uh, no, thank you. I'm not saying a word. Talk to my lawyer. I didn't have a lawyer, but that's what you're supposed to say. And that's what I said. I had visited a lawyer before um, before I was arrested, uh, right after my dad got arrested. And one of the things that was interesting that he told me was, uh, you should probably move. We weren't having a discussion about my involvement in, the, in my dad's arrest. What we were discussing is what typically happens when something like this gets media coverage in a town like Nashua. And he was a Nashua lawyer. And he's like, listen, you're probably not going to want to live here anymore. People around here don't tend to forget. But it was just interesting information to get from a lawyer but that's as close to one as as i had seen in a while so um they uh get i get back up they bring me back down to the national police department cell now i don't know how many of you have ever spent a night in a you know a city municipality um jailhouse but it's uh peabody was great because you got your own cell and you were in a locked room that wasn't... These were bars. This was like a cage. So you were in a cement room, but the front of your cell was a cage. So you're open to everything, and you can hear everything. So this was... I think it was a Thursday. I think Christmas was on a Wednesday. This was a Thursday. So we're going into the Friday night, and a lot of people had it off. So it was a lot like a Friday. So basically, I just I spent the rest of the night freaking out um they gave me a phone call right after the meeting so as i was coming down he's like hey you want your phone call i picked up the phone i tried to call my mother but she usually she was working she didn't get home till like five or six so i couldn't get in touch with her um so i called dawn it was the only other number that i remembered at the point and she was the only person that i could that i knew could get in touch with jess get in touch with mom uh just to let them know uh and then i just kicked back on my bunk man and I, I don't know it's still it was still that same thing i'm still the the fish in the bag even to the other inmates even to the other people arrested so there was this one guy that that ended up getting arrested later in night so maybe i closed my eyes a little bit around nine or ten o'clock if they shoved a piece of pizza underneath my cage at around eight uh, ate, ate as much of that as I could, but not much. And I never turned down pizza. I'm a pizza whore. 
So you could put sauce and cheese on a cracker and call it pizza, man, and I'd be happy as a pig and shit. And this guy starts just, you can hear him. Uh, geez, all they had to do was record this because the guy just sat and incriminated himself the entire time. So apparently he got pulled over with his girlfriend and they found a bunch of weed on him. And he's sitting there in that cell and his girlfriend's name was Rhonda. And Rhonda is in, you know, whatever they sectioned off in terms of, hey, this is the female side and this is the male side. And this is Nashua. How often are you going to have six males on one side and five, uh, you know, six ma uh, females on the other? It's not a big, not a lot of people are getting arrested. Not a lot of mass arrests happening. But these, you could put two or three potential people sitting in these cells. Not overnight, but it could be done. He's in a couple cells away from me, and you can just hear him. Oh my God! I can't believe I got arrested. I can't believe I can't believe it. Gee, I should have. I should have. Damn it! I can't believe I got arrested. I gotta call somebody. Do I have a lawyer? I don't have a lawyer. And he's. Oh my God! That weed. They got the best weed. Holy shit, Rhonda! <laughs> and he just starts screaming at his girlfriend, saying, "Don't tell him anything. Don't say anything." Fuck, man, that weed was so good. I can't believe. And I'm. Li I don't know, man. That dude was all whacked out. So. Uh, he must have done all the blow or whatever amphetamines he was on because this guy wouldn't stop. So, and I don't know that regular blanket anxiety does that to you. But seriously, folks, if that shit ever happens to you, the, the hard, fast rule of keeping your mouth shut is solid, right? It's the, only, it's the only thing you can pretty much depend on once that whole process starts. And this kid was not listening to it. And he was completely interrupting the train of thought that I was trying to get on, which my life was over. <laughs> Fuck. The night was very difficult. You know, you're laying in a cell, you're, you're, and to me, I'm like, I'm, I'm wishing that I was the fish in the bag next door because, because he, no matter how much weed they found on him, and this was back, you know, in 1995 when weed was still considered the danger. Oh my God, it's against the law. Give me a break. Jesus, if you look at the statistically how much crap alcohol causes as opposed to marijuana causes, I bet you marijuana prevents more shit than it causes. Oh, it it, it slows your reaction time. Yeah, but you ain't you ain't moving fast anyway. It gives a fuck the reaction time of a turtle. <laughs> I mean, seriously, can we really start studying how ridiculous it is that we have this attitude about alcohol and we're you know the drunk driving numbers are through the freaking roof, especially on ninety five in Florida. But, you know, marijuana, there's no way. There's just no way. Sorry. Now, he was going home. That's what I mean. That, that's where, at that point, not only are you, are you, that's what my brain is dissecting everything into, is, oh, who is that? That person right there? He's going home tonight. Oh, that person, he's going home tonight. So, and, and there's just a big, giant question mark as to what the rest of my life, at this point, is going to look like. It's pretty crazy. So, the next morning, as they are gearing up to take everybody who couldn't make bail to process. So, they have to um, formally charge you. And it you have to see a judge within 24 hours so you can uh, hear what they're accusing you of. If they don't formally charge you within 24 hours, in which you can start the legal process of getting a lawyer and arranging for bail, um, they just can't. It's unconstitutional as far as, as I think, is that you need to be processed and told what you're being held for within the first 24 hours. So court the next morning, 
there's a handful of guys that are going in the van and driving over to the Nashua District Court. And as they're getting everybody ready to go in the van, everybody gets cuffed. But I see that there's chains being brought out. And I'm noticing that I'm second to the last guy going into the van or in line getting ready to go. And those chains are, are for me. So when I get up, after everybody gets their cuffs and they're all cuffed in front, I get cuffed in front. The cuffs, the middle links to the cuffs are linked to another chain that goes down to my anklets and both of my ankles are chained. So I am the only person shackled hand to feet. And let me tell you something. That is not an easy step up into that van when you are like that. I mean, it's impossible. So I there's not a lot of distance between the ankle bracelets. And now you have ankle bracelets pulling on the wrist anklets and they're like, get in the van. And they're not patient about it and they don't give a shit. You usually have to lay yourself flat down. I'm a little guy, man. I can't step up there. You usually have to kind of sit yourself down and look like a punk getting up there. You have to look like a little bitch trying to get out. You look like a, a girl getting out of a Corvette and she's got a dress on with no underwear. That's basically what that is tantamount to in in jail terms for my credibility. So they drive you to the Nashua District Court and then they put you down in the... Um, in just a... It's a room. It's a room with a door. I'm in a center block room with one plain door with a tiny, tiny window. I mean, if a fire broke out at any point in this building and they didn't come get you, it's a slow death. It's a slow death because there's no air in there. There's nothing. There's no window to look out of. There's no escape. The door's heavy as fuck. It's, that's it. You're done. Um, I am shackled until I am brought, we are all brought as a group into the jury box of a courtroom where they're just going to start oh, standing people up. Joe Schmo, you're charged with DWI. I hereby, about, you know, $1,500 bail or cash surety. Cash, cash surety, which is what they used to say in Massachusetts. And I don't know where else they said it in, in New Hampshire. Cash surety meant 10% of whatever the bail cost was. There was no bail for Bry. Because this was a warrant handed down by the Middlesex Superior Court Grand Jury that said Massachusetts wants Bry. If you grab him for us, do not let him go. So I was not there to hear what my bail was going to be. I was there to hear whether or not it was my choice to fight that extradition. So apparently I have the right, like I've said in other uh, podcasts, like my dad was doing, to t say, hey, I don't think Mass the paperwork that Massachusetts sent you is right. So there, you are not ever going to halt the process of New Hampshire sending you to Massachusetts, but you can postpone it and give yourself breathing room. And But it's going to cost you. And none of that time, usually it doesn't count as time served. So then say you prevent it and then they find something in the paperwork and you end up sitting six months or up to a year waiting for this whole process to, you know, work itself out. Then you get down to Massachusetts and they sentence you to a year and you're like, okay, can I go home? I've already been locked up a year. No, it's not time served because you didn't serve it in mass. And, and that might be something that a good lawyer could work out for you. And that that's pretty much what the, all those idiots do at this point is try to work out how much time you're going to do, how much of it will be concurrent and consecutive and yada, yada, yada. But 
we'll talk about that a lot as as we continue forward but we're all in the jury box and that's when they take off the cuffs and there's bailiffs everywhere and there's state police everywhere so you know you're not booking it <laughs> as soon as you walk in as soon as i walked into the courtroom and i was a second to last guy uh i see mom and jess sitting right there in the front and you could tell neither one of them had slept they both looked like um drowned puppies that were saved just before they reached brain death. <laughs> Sorry, it's it's an apt description of two women that looked utterly emotionally exhausted and drained, especially mom. So, sitting in the jury box and just waiting for the judge to get through everything, and you can tell they're, you know, either I'm in the S's and just they're doing alphabetical and I'm late, don't remember, but I was one of the last people that they were going to call. When they called me to stand up, it was, you know, uh, I didn't have a court-appointed lawyer. There was a lawyer there, and he came over to me, and he says, listen, I'm the public defender, and this is what's going to happen. This is extradition. So he's the one who basically explained a lot of that stuff to me. He says, you can fight this extradition if you want. You've got a lawyer. You'll sit in Valley Street while this whole process goes. Try to prevent Massachusetts from getting you. That's up to you. Or you can sign the extradition order and... Massachusetts has the opportunity to come get you within seven days, I think. It's, it was just so nice to be... Now I am I feel like I'm a piece of... I'm a piece of cattle or something. If you don't seize your property within seven days, uh, we'll forfeit it to freedom, I guess. I don't know. But there is a limit on when they can come get you. So those are my two options at that point, is to tell a judge, hey, uh, no, uh, but, but doesn't mean that New Hampshire is going to say, hey, bro, you can go free. You're still locked up. So there really isn't a lot of benefit here unless you are purposely trying to create some time and some space to figure out what the hell it is that they have against you. But I was pretty sure what they had. Now, I get up and the court-appointed lawyer is standing there and the judge says... Um, I tell the lawyer, I'm just going to sign it. And that, when I did that, it seemed to cause a little bit of an uproar. Like, it seemed to, oh, wow, he's going to sign it. Holy shit, okay. It seemed to be like some, like somebody saying, hey, I'm guilty. You know what I mean? And, like, they're saying that and it's just saving them a whole lot of time and and bullshit. So, there's a little bit of a blah, 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 and then, okay, and then. You see the lawyers get together, the prosecution and my public defender get together, and we step back, and then the judge says, okay, Mr. Sobolewski, it's come to my understanding that you are going to sign the extradition order here from the state of Massachusetts. Uh, this is an extradition order saying that a grand jury in the Middlesex County Courthouse um, has indicted you for the charges of armed robbery, conspiracy to commit armed robbery, kidnapping, robbery through confinement, and larceny. By signing this extradition order, you are telling them that you are likely the person that did these things, and boom, my sister gets up and says, whoa, you ain't signing shit. Hold on, no, no way. What did he just say? That what? No, Bri, forget it. You're not signing anything. And it's amazing that she could get that much out, but we're court-savvy people. And my sister got up and said, that's bullshit. You're not signing You're not signing anything that says that. Now, the judge starts banging the gavel because oof, when you interrupt a judge, and we know this because Judge Ruma in Peabody, Massachusetts, 
sat on the bench, a little tiny. I don't even, I don't know if, what's rumor? Rumor. Is it rumor? I was in front of him twice and he was a douche. And because listen, he's standing in front of people that, like I said before in other podcasts, and, and how I identify with what it must be like as a police officer is, you know, imagine it must be a lot like dealing with teenagers and children who just stand in front of you and lie their ass off and you know they're lying. Imagine you're a police officer 10 years in and you've listened to 10 years of lies to the point, it must get to the point. Like a gynecologist doesn't want to see any vaginas that you don't see truth anymore. You know what I mean? So it's just interesting psychologically to, to wonder what that what that must be like. So my sister's losing her shit and judge and this judge is banging on his gavel and some people move. <laughs> the state police kind of move to remove my sister. But the public defender finally says, Your Honor, uh, let's just let's just take a break. Let's let's figure this out. And it was clear the judge wasn't supposed to say that by signing this, you are admitting that you're the person that likely did these things. He was supposed to say that you're just saying to Massachusetts, Yes, I'm coming down to hear your charges. And the way that he worded that got my sister to jump up like a meerkat, like home, like a meerkat with a lioness breathing down. Just boop, popped right up and said, "No way!" And God bless her, man. Boom, she was and she fought with that judge, cause cause as soon as she got up, the judge just starts banging the gavel and just starts arguing without realizing he fucked up. So my sister starts arguing back to the judge. No way, you don't know what you're talking about. Where the hell did you get your law degree? Woo! It was awesome. It's pretty awesome. You know, there's, ne there's never a dull moment with us. So, they clear the courtroom and they take a recess. And this is where, this is where um, I am, the phase one of why I'm amazed at investigators, and I'm sure none of, not they're all not like this. But they leave a cop behind, a uniformed cop, and he sits pretty far away from us in the courtroom and my mother and sister stay behind. I'm in the jury box and so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm assuming I'm not allowed to go beyond the jury box. So I maintain my borders as I understand them and my mother and sister on the other side. You know, explain, we exchange pleasantries and this guy's sitting over there and, I, you know, we're not within earshot, but... We're talking and, and my mother goes, uh, you know, they searched the place that you were uh, staying at and uh, they didn't find anything, by the way, which is awesome. <laughs> so as I told you in the last episode, uh, I have about four bags. I have two bags of jewelry that's gold and rings and I have a bag of pearls and I have that bag of silver. I didn't find any of it. None of it was recovered. Um they went in there and searched the woman that I was living with house. And I really feel bad about that because I sold her some jewelry. So she had information for them. She's like, yeah, you had tons of jewelry, but uh, they didn't find anything. What they did, they did find my personal jewelry and my personal jewelry never showed up. It didn't show up on an evidence list. It didn't show up as personal property for me. It didn't show up anywhere. So somebody put that shit in their pocket. 
I say to my mother, listen, you know, I certainly don't expect us to try to be able to continue to pay rent on that room. So get my shit out of there. And that was it. It's all we said. It's all we said. That cop gets up and leaves the room and goes and says, hey, he just told his mother to get the shit out of his place. Like I was telling them to get jewelry that I had stored there out. Like this little prick, like what, like there are these, I don't know. I don't know what it's like to be a cop, but there has to be ladder climbers that make everybody's fucking life miserable. And this was one of them. This was a, this was a son of a bitch cop that decided uh, that, you know, to take the Miranda rights and anything you can uh, say will be used against you in a court of law. Boom. That's what he read. That's what he heard. And he jumps up and he says, Bride just said, get all the jewelry out of his house. Like he twisted the words around to make it sound like I was giving them some coded message. God, you know, I'd love to punch that prick. I swear to God. Like that just makes me mad because it's stupid and unnecessary. Do your job better because you had it so wrong. So fucking wrong. I'm going to take a quick break um, before we continue on with the suicide pact, ladies and gentlemen. Having a blast. Do a quick commercial and uh, see you in a sec. Hey, everybody, we're back. Uh, so after Deputy Douchebag tries to make things even worse for me, uh, they actually did go back and talk to the woman and search the woman's house that I lived in. Um, and I wouldn't doubt it if they tailed my sister for a little while. Um, and you find all of this stuff up after the call, after the lawyers go through all of this, the discovery. So one of the ways you can tell if your criminal lawyer is doing his job, and I'm sure he's billing you for every second of it, is how much of the case they really know. Some of them will just, they don't know or, or dig as deep as they could into these things. But, um, you know, we found out a lot of information post, um, post, being in jail and post robberies one was that dad pulled that first robbery and you can hear all that stuff back in season one where kevin knight had no idea dad pulled that first situation and and you know this whole thing got started a lot with because dad said hey i i need help with this and who can you trust and who's better to bring into this but your children <laughs> Woo so deputy douchebag uh still i i can't i have no idea where he is he's probably a senator somewhere making trouble for everybody else. But um, my court-appointed lawyer comes back over to me, explains that everything's fine. The judge is going to come back out and you are going to sign the extradition papers. They reshackle me to do this. Almost as if I'm not allowed to approach the judge without my shackles on or something. Like, I don't know. And I was, I was pretty heated at that point. And you could see my sister was still breathing pretty heavy. Like, boy, you know, those deputies would have had uh, quite the fight on their hands if they decided to grab her up and try to pull her out of that courtroom. But like I said, we, we have experience. The Sobolewskis know a courtroom. Uh, I wish I knew a football field the way I knew a courtroom. Judge comes back out. I'm shackled. I make my way up to the, um, the bench where the paperwork is, all looking all official. Some of it might have been in gold leaf. And I signed my friggin' soul away. Well, I had done that the second 
<laughs> in the second robbery. Meaning, our first, dad's second. They didn't shackle me because I was going up to see the judge. They shackled me because from there, from that signature, they were taking me out the door. So uh, they moved me to um, the downstairs and they put me back in that center block room uh, where there's no bench, there's nothing. There's nothing in that room. There's not even that toilet set up. And in this... I start to really, it starts to really dawn on me, man. I can't go home. I can't go home. And that's where it's it starts to feel heavy. That signature was so permanent. There's just such a time. I imagine this is what it's like before you're executed. And I know it's a, it's a leap I'm making here, but that entire time right until that guillotine comes down on your neck that needle goes in your vein that that noose tightens around your neck and that chair falls from your feet you're still hoping something's going to stop it you're still hoping that it's some there's something here that could change the course of event, of events and you can go home with your mother and sister right now up until the, the up until the point I made that signature and I was led downstairs, I was still thinking, maybe, maybe I can go home tonight. <laughs> and I thought that for a very I thought the next I thought that until I was in the back of a van heading to state prison. But I'm jumping ahead. They put me in the back of a state uh cruiser state police cruiser and I wasn't exactly sure I was I didn't know where Valley Street was at the time I didn't know like dad told me where like it would his calls would come in and say dad at the Valley Street jail and I knew it was in Manchester but I had no idea where it was and it's pretty you know it's right in the middle of Manchester man it's pretty centrally located and you know, not that that's you know weird uh the Cambridge jail is right next to the, the Cambridge side Galleria. Like we used to be able to look down and see the Cambridge side Galleria. Um, so that, you know, there are decent sized jails and there's another, another one in Boston. There's two, there's that superior one. And then there's a County one right across, right near the water, near the museum of science. Um, so, they ship me to Valley Street, and I've never been to this facility before, but Jesus, it looks all kinds of official. Soup, it's a big brick building, all squares. They don't tend to do a lot of rounding. Maybe that reminds people of stabbing or penises. or I can't tell you, but I'll tell you, there there are people out there that study this shit and say, hey, we got to design this building like this because the people you're going to have inside shouldn't see squares or shouldn't see the color red or the color... You know what I mean? It's It's, <laughs> it's really interesting. So... It's like having a, like, say, you don't have a red cape around a bull, right? So is that, a, is that a thing? Are bulls really not, do they really not like red, or is that just folklore? They put me into a holding cell, and every single place you go, you are reprocessed. And by processed, it's photos, uh, standing there with a number, 
and your name and they take a photo of all sides of you they do fingerprints uh some places were doing ink but a lot of them had the technology where they just essentially photocopy it and now they have your finger um there's been lots of talk of getting every single inmate's DNA on file as soon as they come in now that they have DNA technology. And we will get into that because at one point Massachusetts did take my DNA without my permission. Um, so you're processed. Then I sit in a holding cell. And there's just nobody in this whole process is there to let you know what's next. So you're just sitting there, either you don't know if you're in for a 12-hour wait, you don't know if somebody's getting you in two minutes, you don't know where they're bringing you, where you're going to lay your head, you just don't know. And I'm sitting there for a little while and by myself, and then all of a sudden, they put another guy in there. Tall, skinny guy, lots of tattoos, exactly what you would expect in there. And he's wearing an orange jumpsuit, and I'm still in my clothes. So, he is kind of a little bit jittery and he, he stays up because I'm sitting on the on the bunk and he says, uh, well, what'd they grab you for? And I said, uh, I'm robbery. And as soon as I said it, he stepped away from me as if he knew I was breathing out COVID. Like there was something about my charge that made him not even want to stand next. Like, oh, that's unspoken. Don't want to be near him. He's... He, it, it was weird. It wasn't a respect thing. It was, geez, that, that guy reeks of something, like guilt and, I don't know. It was it was a weird reaction, I thought. Like, oh shit, is it, did I disrespect him or something? And and it, like I said, it wasn't a, wasn't a fear thing. It was just, it was weird. Eventually somebody comes to get me and they bring me to one of the pods. By pod, I mean they have four separate pods, and then they have a H pod, which would be the hospital. Then they have an S pod, which is like the suicide or the um, solitary pod. I don't know if that's specifically what they're called at Valley Street. That's I'm saying this, but I might be remembering a different jail that I was in. But I think I'm on point. And all the time that um, I'm here, I know Dad's in the building. This will be the first time that I've seen this man since his arrest. And, and I know he's in there. And I know, um, I know they're not going to put me with him. But um, I move over into pod two. And before you go, in, you go down this long industrial hallway, polished and fluorescent, through doors upon doors upon doors. There's just no way. Even if you had the keys, it's going to take you a long time to figure out which freaking key went into which hole. It just, I mean, they make it absolutely impossible for you to ever be able to get out of this place, even if you had the means. Which is, again, another thing that I would watch a regular movie with somebody and be like, no, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. I watched Iron Man 2 and the way that, uh, what's his name, Escape from Prison in there. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. So they bring me up to the pod where there you go through one door and you're in an anteroom like a you're between two doors where it takes many steps to get to the next door so you can't hold them both open. And then you are looking through a door window that exposes the pod, which is two tiers of cells all around the entire room and it's just a big square. 
on the top there's a walkway and in the very middle they have a little weight set up like not not dumbbells or anything nothing that you could pick up and slam with it was one of those old uh i forget the name pre-core something like that where it was like a bench press machine it was a lat pull down machine nothing again nothing you could take out um even the pins were attached to very very hard wire you couldn't get those off and there's a the guard who is generally on duty one guard is inside there and he comes into um that hallway and next to it is an office where you would meet with lawyers and there he puts me in and i'm strip searched and this is my first strip search take off all your clothes i don't have to go through that whole thing right the bend and spread and then I'm issued an orange jumpsuit and I'm allowed to keep my underwear on and um, all the rest of my clothes, I have no idea what happened to them. They're not put in a bag. They're not put in a bag for me to bring somewhere. I have no idea where they go. Uh, in my orange jumpsuit, I go into the pod and they tell me to go into cell two. Cell two is um, empty for now. I don't have a cellmate. And uh, I go right in and sit down on the bunk and I start to, to think things through. I mean, it doesn't really get uh, more real than this right now because especially I am now around other people and it's not like you're around other people at college where, hey, we are all here sharing a common experience. Let's all bond in that. It's a, hey, uh, is that dude going to kill me? Is that dude going to kill me? Should I take a shower? Is everything I heard about the shower? You know, it just becomes very, very fucking real, man. And I sit and decide that uh, I was going to get up and I was going to go see what the weights were like and I as I'm walking as I'm walking there these two guys two Hispanic guys uh, one's got a goatee both of them built well, one's a little taller than the other and they have a open newspaper and they're both looking at it and they're both they both look like they're reading the same article and one glances up at me and he glances back down and he looks back up and he points and goes back down and they both both eyes come back up and then they go both back down and they wave me over and I'm like, okay, it seems pretty friendly, but what the fuck? I don't know what this is. And I walk over and there is a newspaper article and that's the cover that I used for indictment. And they were reading it and they were like, this you? And I'm like, yeah. And they're looking at it and they're like, yeah, uh, I'm probably going to do about six years for that. And boom, wow. That was the gut punch because that put a, that put a very stark reality on what I was looking at from people that probably knew as well as anybody the outcome of what they were reading. And it scared the living shit out of me. I went back into my cell and I wasn't sure what the fuck I was going to do. I wasn't sure. <laughs> I was like, I, I, I can't do six years. I'm not doing six years. And if I'm getting six years, dad's getting a hundred and Kev's getting fucking 50 and he, Kev's right. He should kill himself because his life's over like that. 
there's no measure of hope. And there shouldn't be. Like that. There's also another side of this, hindsight-wise, and while you're in it, what adds to the despair significantly is you put yourself there. You're there because of you. You fucked yourself. Nobody cares. Nobody cares that you're there. And in the situation that you're in, you'll get no sympathy from anybody other than the people that love you. And and this is where you find out who loves you. I get out of my cell and I walk because I know my dad's in the pod across the way. And I start doing this... Um, <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun. I start doing this pacing. If I could be circling the pod, I would. But I was just pacing back and forth looking to see if I could just catch a glimpse of him. It just, I needed to see a friendly face across the way. Because you could see straight through. It wasn't crystal clear. I don't, but you, you could see. And I just needed to see him. I just needed to see him. And I'm going back and forth. And all of a sudden I got, hey, yo. And it was the guard. And he, and he waves me over. And he says, look, um, I know your old man is here. And I know you're trying to contact him. And if we find out that you guys have had any contact whatsoever, uh, you'll be pulled right out of here. You guys will be separated right away. Don't try to get in touch with him. And I was like, wow. <laughs> Shit. So I go back into my cell and I got nothing. You got nothing. I don't, I don't have soap. I don't have... No, nothing to shower with. You can go into the shower if you want, but it's basically just water being poured on you. You have no reason to stay clean. Um, I have no... Like, some of the inmates had spent... Were, that's where you await trial, and if you spent any significant time there, you could eventually start to buy things from the canteen, which was very small because Valley Street isn't necessarily a place that people do time. It's usually pre-trial and... Uh, it's not a place where that you set up camp. Eventually, I get somebody in the cell with me, so things just started to really suck. I can use the phone, and I call mom here and there, but it's just awful. It's awful to call outside of that, out of the fish tank, and to hear free uh, speech, to hear a free voice. It's it's it, That's why they usually say, stay away from the phones in prison, because you don't want to call home. You don't want to bring. You don't want to start any shit or get anybody thinking about the fact that they're waiting for you and they don't have to. <laughs> Essentially, that's why you never want to go into uh, relationship. Go uh, in prison. Kevin broke up with Susan very quickly. She lived with my grandmother for a little while while Kev was going through this whole process. But in the end, uh, he dumped her, and I I got that call. I got that call, and uh, we'll get there. But it's very difficult to call. I ca I did eventually get a glimpse of dad. And as luck would have it, because I had lived in the area as long as I had. And I used to go to the, me and dad used to go to the same gym. One of the guards was one of the guys that used to work out there. Quiet guy, kept to himself. And uh, there was this one guy in the gym while he was there and he was notorious. He was just one of those idiots that would get on the leg extension machine and he would do a hundred reps of the leg extension machine and he would insist somebody spot him 
but nobody, the spotter never ever touched it. And he would go, go, and he would, as he got higher into reps, he'd start screaming, keep it loose, keep it loose, keep it tight, keep it tight, keep it loose, keep it tight. And everyone in the room is like, well, which fucking one is it? And it was loud. It was obnoxious. You couldn't even hear the music. And this kid, this guard that, that I knew, screams out in the middle of the gym, oh, Jesus Christ, will you shut the fuck up? <laughs> and everybody was feeling it and everybody was thinking it. Um, the owner was not happy that he did it, but you know, what do you want? You want to keep one guy happy as you're screaming something out while you got 30 other pissed off members. But knowing that this kid waves me over and you know, I knew it was him and I was like, Oh shit. I didn't want to run into him, but he recognized me. He waves me over. He goes, listen, your dad says hello. And he says to go to Sunday mass. I'm like, all right. I'm like, now dad's been there for about eight months and he's already capable of sending me a message through the grapevine to get bry. You know, I don't know. Dad has always been that guy and, and dad, this is how dad's time will go. You will see the entire the entire way. That's why I call him the Teflon Dad, and that's why you heard in conversations. And I'll bring Dad back in season two uh, because he says he's got a well. I got a funny story about the when I got brought down to Cambridge. So he's still in Valley Street, and he's been there a little while, and he's managed to. Um, I think he got a job, and he's he's. Uh, I think he had a single cell too. Fucking single cell! You have no idea. You have no idea what it is like to have a single cell in prison. I had one for one night. I almost broke my dick. So, sorry about that. <laughs> I go to, um, I go to this mass and dad's there and he sits right next to me, but he lets an aisle of chairs and it's all just chairs that are set up and it's a mass you know where some dude comes in off the street and you know fakes it through a mass I don't think it was a priest and there are other inmates there you know everybody gets religion inside everybody becomes a believer inside everybody becomes a, a, uh, has remorse inside oh my god you hear everybody in there and they're the perfect gentleman until they take two steps out and they become the same demon that got them there. Trust me. Everybody finds religion behind the wall. Everybody. And I'm sitting there and dad's dad's playing it really cool because I know we're not supposed to talk and we're not supposed to have contact. So I'm freaking out. I'm just freaked out about all of this. And, and he hands me a, a lemon Jolly Rancher. Lemon Jolly Rancher, prick. Can't you saving the fruit punch for yourself, asshole? Lemon. And it's just, but it was a lemon jolly rancher, man. I'm sorry, but I'm in prison. Um, the food that they had presented me so far, seriously, I don't, I don't need to go into it. You know, it's just a pile of tub of shit. It's disgusting. It's just disgusting. And it was a piece of reality. It's like somebody had stuck, snuck something into the fish tank that wasn't supposed to be there, that I wasn't supposed to have. And oh my God. <gasps> but at the same time, I wasn't supposed to have it. 
seriously, it was contrabanded because the only workers were allowed to have that stuff. So I put it in the sock that I was wearing. And uh, by this point, you realize quickly that uh, once a week, they go around in your cell. Both you and your cellmate have to strip down to completely naked and throw all your clothes out. And they throw what they think is the identical back in. But it's not always a medium. It's not always a, a, what the size you need. So there were several times I had underwear that didn't I couldn't wear in my jumpsuit. Cause and and not only that, but it's the fact that oh, oh, Jesus, this is like this is somebody's eighth. COVID was born in a prison out of one of these pairs of underwear. It was just disgusting. Of course, it should be right here. Just savor this, guys, because this is where your tax money's going. And this is this is the torture part of it that you hear. Hey, you know, a guy did this amount of time, and you think that's bad enough. But you know, the devil's in the details. So enjoy this, because because again, you know, we tore the shit out of Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and New Hampshire, and acted like a bunch of fucking idiots for so long that yeah, you know, we raised your taxes, <laughs> the money you're paying for police now, and that you continue to look at and say, hey, that percentage of my taxes goes to that. That's, all right, don't mind that. Well, we were part of that for a little while, so bask in our torture. You know, we say a couple things, but th by then, you know, th it's still, it was like a it, sitting with dad at, in Valley Street Church Mass was like a phone call. You know, it was like everything else. Go over the details of what we think and what we know and what's going to happen maybe in a couple months and my trial and my this and my that. And I go back to my cell. And this, this is the point that I'm quite sure I can't do this. And, I, and after hearing the six years and after my reaction to a Jolly Rancher that I had to smuggle back into the pod because you're padded down before you go back in and it was just, it sucked. I would rather not have contraband and not have something like that. That jo lemon Jolly Rancher wasn't as good as the stress I went through trying to get it back into the fucking pod. And who knows? I'm always so worried. I didn't want to go to the hole for a lemon Jolly Rancher. Who the fuck wants to be in the hole for, for that? So the, this was the culmination of all things you have heard up to this point. So what I am about to describe to you, why this and, and coming full circle to why this was a suicide pact, was there has there have only been a handful, if that, number of times in my life that I have cons considered suicide. And that's, you know, I've considered suicide pretty much every single time the cocaine was gone. Um, but that's just bullshit. I I'm not and I'm not talking about the suicide that is the cry for help. Okay? So, and I have, I have examples of those. So when I was a kid, uh, my mother... God bless her soul, um, always dragged us to therapy because she knew. She knew that church wasn't going to fix us the way Bupchi said it was going to. And she knew um, we needed more help than, than we were currently getting. So we're constantly being brought to therapy. Kevin is untherapizable. If that, I just maybe made up a word, but you can't, you can't therapize him. He is, he is like the Irish, they say, in The Departed, where they say the Irish are incapable of psychoanalysis, of being psychoanalyzed because they are too resistant. 
They won't ever give up shit. <laughs> you know, and it's bullshit. Trust me. Go to Southie and find out. No. Sorry. If I, and I just looked. Southie's not listening. Boston's crushing it. Boston's listening in uh, Concord. I wonder if any of the inmates in Concord can listen to this because uh, Concord was the second highest and then Peabody and uh, lots of other places in, in Massachusetts. But I digress because I'm in Valley Street right now. And um, when I saw that, there was one therapist that I had that I went to as a teen. So by the time we were all teenagers, we had basically decided, mom always suggested it and offered it, but none of us took it. And I did. And I went to go see this guy, Brian Kelly. And the reason I like this guy, Irish, um, is his uh, first name was spelled the same way as mine. And I did sit with this guy and I he asked me straight out, have you ever thought of committed, committing suicide? And I said yes, because I that, that was the question he asked. And we talked about it. And we talked about it a lot. And part of me almost had him believing that I was considering and making a plan for it because I liked the attention again. This was another version of being sick, of, of like getting physically ill and then another adult taking interest in that. I liked the fact that an adult was concerned whether or not I was alive or dead. <laughs> so in that I I wasn't I would never have killed myself. Now, there have been a number of times on drugs, you know, before rehab and all that stuff that I contemplated, but I I would never actually do it. I honestly can tell you that that up to the point of that of the Hudson Bridge over the Merrimack that point where I was going to jump over that killing myself has never been something that I would actually consider until that point and until the point that I was sitting in my cell at some Asian fat guy that was in the bunk above me that snored like crazy so I hadn't slept and there was a couple nights prior that in the middle of the night we all got woken up because in the cell next to me, the guy had hung himself. He was looking at, um, I think he raped his niece or something. It was just awful. And it was in the paper and this guy wasn't going to make it anyway. And he killed himself. And then, you know, you watch the whole thing go down. You watch him pull the body out. You watch. And that's where in my brain I said, hey, you, you can do it because you, you think about it and you're like, hey, could I kill myself in here? There's, it's very difficult. There's nowhere to like throw a rope over anything. And it's like when you look at a cell, it's number one designed to A, not kill another person in it and B, yourself. So it's not it's not easy to do, which is why when you hear Epstein and other people that get that are die in prison, know that they had outside help. Aaron Hernandez, <clears throat> another example of somebody that killed themselves that, um, yeah, I don't know. <clears throat> I don't know about that. So, for the first time in my life, the idea that I can't do this anymore and that it's not worth, it's not worth it because you know, once the negative, once the negativity starts, and believe me, this is why I hate being called negative because I know true negativity. Once the negativity starts and it starts to spiral, and you start to continue to look forward, and you can only see bad. I couldn't look beyond the six years these pricks were projecting for me. I couldn't look beyond that. 
I could only see, um, and if I did look beyond that, my life was over. I was an ex-con. Who the hell's going to hire me? How am I ever going to get a job again? How, you know, all that stuff, you do start to see potentially your life is over and certainly the life as you had known it is gone. And I was going to kill myself. And I, my, my brain went through the list of people that would be affected by this. And of course, my mother's was the first on the list. And I at least owed her a phone call. I at least owed her an explanation for what I was about to do. I, I owed her that. So I went to the phone. And I picked it up and I called her collect. And it is, it is a very difficult thing it is very difficult to show emotion in prison you shouldn't and, and I wasn't in prison this was a jail but in any of those situations you don't want to show a weakness I mean of course not and I'm on this phone and uh, but I was resolute man my mind was made up so it there was some strength in that there was some strength in that letting go is that weird to say and I heard her voice and I said mom uh I just wanted to give you a call. Uh, I don't think I'm going to make it. And she says, uh, you know, I, I can understand that. I, I was like, uh, uh, this is a little taken aback there, right? And, and I said, um, I just wanted to call and let you know that I don't think I'm going to make it. And she said, I don't think I am either. <laughs> another like whoa hey what what I said what are you talking about she's like I don't I don't think I can do this this is why I called it suicide pact pact because um, it was at that point that the decision that I had made uh, its effects registered in my mind and I said well I'll tell you something I won't if you won't. She says, what do you mean? I said, well, if you don't, <laughs> I won't. She said, deal. You know, maybe she wasn't considering it. Maybe this was her way of, of avoiding the trying to talk me down off the ledge. But I'm, I'm positive that she was serious because I clarified. I said, so just so we're clear, if I hear you're going down, know that you're taking me with you and vice versa. And she said, deal. I'm going to end it there because I'm getting emotional. Um, thank you so much for listening. Really appreciate it. I'll talk to you next week.